0: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Welcome,
1: Lucy. Thank you, Alex. How are you doing?
0: I am very well. On this, the spring equinox, which I know has put gladness into your heart. And a spring in your step.
1: Well, I don't know if I go that far, but no, it has, because this is the turning point, isn't it? Because now it really is spring and the days are longer than the nights, I think, aren't they, officially now? I mean, you wouldn't know it where I am because it's been raining for about a week solid. Yeah, and here, and it's just constantly grey. But I'm mm. I'm kind of, I'm glossing over that. And I take <laughs> it as a sign that we can officially talk about gardens. Yes, that's, we can. That's what I think. How's your garden, Alex? Well, it is, I have to say, full of stuff that needs stripping away.
0: There's quite a lot of dead matter. And right. I'm convinced that when when we get past that, we'll see some new shoots beneath. I did actually bring in my own little tiny daffodils for the general kind of Mother's Day celebrations and that sort of thing. I had one of those weekends when it was people's 50th birthdays and Ireland were playing rugby and it was Mother's Day and it was St. Patrick's Day. So there was an awful lot of celebratory eating and drinking and I there were my daffodils at the centre of the kitchen table. Very good. I learned the thing
1: about daffodils. Tell me. You're now on a bound to say, tell. You could just go, it's so. The thing I'm going to say is that they don't play nicely with other flowers as cut flowers. Did you know that?
0: Oh, I
1: didn't. It's funny because you do just tend to put them. I mean, they're so pretty, you just put them in on their own, do they not? No, they don't. So putting them in on their own is fine. But if you put them straight in with other flowers, they will kill the other flowers much quicker, cut flowers, than normal. Because there's a sort of sap that comes out of them for about 24 hours. You can see it, actually, when you're cutting daffodils. So what you need to do is put them, if you want to mix them with other flowers, you have to put them in, they have to be in a room on their own, as it were. They have to be in a jar on their own of cold water. And then after about 24 hours, then they're allowed to mingle with other flowers. There you go.
0: They have to acclimatise before they can play nicely.
1: They do; otherwise, they don't play nicely. I know nicely how they away. feel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have we been doing anything more literary? Have we been reading anything good, for example?
1: Well, I've been re-reading Damon Runyon because oh, I'm hoping to get there's a new production of Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre, which we will review. I've just seen people raving about it, so I haven't. Yes, I've got a mm. review in, but I haven't been able to read it yet. So I'm trying not to read anything. About it, but I will, and I'm also, frankly, hoping to go along. But I remember that I read it ages and ages ago. I used to read quite a bit of detective fiction, like Raymond Chandler, and I think Dashiell Hammer as well, and Damon Runyon, who is a bit lighter, certainly, than Raymond Chandler. Have you read any of the stories that come from Guys and Dolls?
0: Yes, but honestly, I'd say when I was a teenager, you know, yes, so, and I do remember being captivated by them, but I've not been back to them since. But you're saying I should. Well,
1: they're just, they're delightful. It's it's a little bit darker than I remember. I think it's because I went from Raymond Chandler to Damon Runyon, I thought, oh, this is very light and frothy. And they're not, it's still kind of the underworld and mobs and people, you know, getting hit and things like that. But usually the morals are fairly sound. They've all, you know, it's it's kind of thieves with a heart of gold. And the amazing thing about it is the style because it's that present tense. It's a sort of continuous present tense. And if he has to say something in the past, They find a way of telling you it and still everything's in the present tense. You know, we are down at the races. We are doing this. I'm not doing it justice.
0: But it has a kind of immediacy and an energy to
1: it. Totally. And kind of odd little turns of phrase like not quite somewhat or somewhat Mm. more of. And he really doesn't say men and women. He really does just say guys and dolls very unselfconsciously. And it's really, really good fun. So I recommend it. How about you? This is very good isn't it because we have a big rereading coming up later on we the do. program. Yes. But yes, I've we
0: actually do. been doing something that isn't rereading but I feel that I must pretend it is because I'm sure I've pretended to have read this book many many times. Okay. But for the first time I'm actually listening to it I'm listening to Jenny Agutter reading to me I capture the castle. Oh it's just it's bliss isn't it bliss? It's pure bliss and it's also I mean it's so quotable. I mean it's a one liner it's a gagathon, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. It really is. From the opening line, I write this sitting in the kitchen sink or something with my yes. feet in the kitchen sink. And a like
0: very that. marvelous thing. She says her father has read something that she writes, and he says, it's very stately with a desperate desire to be funny. And I thought, well, that's just I could have that on my grave, frankly. <laughs> I'm completely loving it, loving it very much. And but we do have more of that coming up. So on this week's show a different kind of literary agent, with the secret life of Daniel Defoe. And Martin Amos's daring debut, The Rachel Papers, is 50 years old. Claire Loudon joins us to explore
1: whether it's showing its age or wearing well. But first, we're going to talk about Daniel Defoe, a writer whose name we know and whose most famous work has permeated our consciousness. But do we know much more than that? So we know he wrote Robinson Crusoe and also a journal of the plague year and Moll Flanders. We might know that he wrote non-fiction as well as fiction and had a tendency to claim that his fiction was real, confusingly, but did you know he was a secret agent or that he was instrumental in helping to bring about the Union of England and Scotland in 1707 or that he was in and out of prison for sedition and debt? The Cambridge edition of his correspondence from 1703 to 1730, edited by Nicholas Seeger, has recently been published. And we're delighted that Margaret Lincoln, whose most recent book is London in the 17th century, is here to help us to know more about this complex individual. Margaret, many thanks for joining us.
2: No, that's great. Thank you.
1: So let's plunge right in. This period of Defoe's correspondence, it covers the time when he was, in fact, a secret government agent, wasn't he? Can you tell us how that
2: came about? Well, he was in debt for seditious libel. He'd written a pamphlet that got him put in Newgate and later pilloried. And I think Harley, you know, who became the chief minister in in Britain or England as it was. This is Robert Harley, the MP, is that right? Exactly. Robert Harley became chief minister under Queen Anne. And he saw in Defoe somebody who could be of use to him and more or less approached him and trained him up. Well, first of all, he got him out of Newgate. He paid his fine. And Defoe was, you know, immensurably grateful because he had quite a few children by then. And, you know, being in Newgate was not helpful. Harley got him out and Defoe was happy to show his gratitude by, by writing pamphlets generally in support of Harley.
1: Hmm. Can I just check, actually, this is my historical ignorance, and he was pilloried. Is that when you had to stand, it a bit like the stocks, but you had to stand up and people might kind of throw tomatoes at you and things?
2: Yeah, tomatoes, eggs, dead cats, and (laughs) things that were actually quite dangerous. I mean, people could die in the pillory, but Defoe was, he used it as a kind of promotional opportunity and because people were fairly well disposed towards him and didn't think he deserved to be pilloried well in short they threw soft things that didn't really harm him but yes he did stand up in the pillory yes.
1: yeah so he was sort of he was recruited by a sort of spymaster in a way when he was in prison
2: he was recruited by a government minister harley to find out the state of people's opinions in different parts of the land so before he helped out in scotland harley sent him round on tours of england i mean there was very little way of gauging public opinion and defoe was very good at it you know he could adopt different persona and ask people their thoughts and engage them in conversation so he went on various tours you know of the east and the west which later came in good stead when he wrote a tour of great britain mm. he was sort of taking the
0: temperature of kind of national opinion and he i wonder how would he To introduce himself, why would he say that he wanted to know what people thought? Or did he just pretend to kind of slip into casual conversation with them?
2: Well, two things really. When he was in Scotland, he did adopt a disguise. He he pretended to be a merchant, you know, dealing in linen and various other things. So he wasn't really spotted there as a government spy. If If he had been, it would have been terribly dangerous. But he also built up these networks you know these regional networks although that doesn't sound like the right term these days but he wrote masses of letters and linked up with dissenters and various other groups to find out this information. Tell me if I've got this right because I might not have when he went into (laughs) prison
1: he was a Whig but then he started working for Robert Harley who then became a Tory so then he was working secretly for the Tories but he did occasionally kind of deceive Robert
2: Harley as well is that right? It gets terribly complicated. You're right. (laughs) The Victorians were, you know, having thought that Defoe was a great man, as soon as they began to read his letters, they began to get cold feet and think that he was a completely immoral person after all. But yes, that's broadly right. He was always loyal to Harley, although occasionally he cheated on Harley, if you can put it that way. But by and large, Defoe was a moderate Whig. It's just that when Harley became a Tory, he He did write on behalf of the Tories, if that makes sense.
1: Mm -hmm. It's funny that you say that Victorians found him moral, because I got the impression, because when I say it like that, it it, it makes him sound very slippery, maybe even immoral or amoral. But in fact, I got the impression that actually there's a great political and religious conviction involved in what he's doing.
2: I think you're right. I mean, he was a very religious person. I mean, everybody was, in a sense, unless they didn't believe in it at all. But I mean, religion pervaded everything. He was intended for the church, but didn't become a dissenting minister. But he did have this religious view of the world, and he was moral within his own terms, which meant Mm. that he could be a bit slippery, but he could always justify it to his own conscience.
1: And do you think being a dissenter, do you think maybe that helped? Because if you were a dissenter, you were already sort of slightly on the outside, weren't you? Not in the establishment. So you would have to be able to sort of talk to lots of people and maybe conceal things a bit.
2: Well I think that's a good point and it also meant that he was incredibly well educated because he went to a a dissenting academy and they taught um, their students maths and it was a much broader education than he would have got if he'd gone to Oxford or Cambridge.
0: And during this time what were his feelings about writing fiction and literature and and also of course the, the non-fiction that he wrote? Did he have a sense of sort of being in training for doing that, as it were? Did he know all the stuff that he was seeing was kind of
2: material? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's very hard to judge this, but he just became very adept at seeing different markets for his books or different markets for his writing. And he became very, very good at adopting a persona and writing from that perspective. So in a sense, he was able to develop these characters. I mean, he could even write as a woman, you know, more Flanders. I mean, like Moll Flanders, he had gone to Newgate, but he was able to write from her perspective. And I think it probably helped that he had, you know, four daughters who survived to adulthood. And um, he did sympathize with them. I mean, he wrote books on, on marriage and he did see that for women, marriage was a much greater risk than it was for men. Mm not least because he said he ruined his own wife's chances. I mean, he spent her fortune and became bankrupt, you know, very early on in Mm. their marriage. But they had a long a long marriage, didn't they, and apparently successful. Yes. I mean, the thing I was hoping to find from his letters was a little bit more about his home life, and there isn't very much. But you do get these hints, you know, that um, when he was in Scotland for 15 months and when he was on these long tours of England, you know, his wife Mary had to keep the house and... She wasn't regularly receiving money. Um, She had to, you know, uh, keep in touch with his patrons and make excuses for him. So I think, you know, all that work is lost, if you like. I mean, you see Defoe's achievement. but I think her achievement was probably remarkable too. And you don't
1: get any sense from the letters of what kind of relationship they had?
2: Well, he does talk about her being a faithful steward. You know, he he relied on her a lot to keep the home you know, steady while he was away.
1: Mm, It's not a terribly passionate description, is it, faithful student? Well,
2: I suppose not, but he's not writing about his personal relationship to his correspondent, if you see what I mean. He's explaining his wife's status, I suppose, Mm -hmm. so that she would get the money.
1: Yes, I see what you mean. He's kind of giving her a character reference. Exactly. It's OK. She's looking after everything. She's very steady. Can you tell us how he was involved in bringing about the union in between England and Scotland? And also, when you said it was dangerous. Why was it so dangerous?
2: Well, there were very many Scots who didn't want union with England. And he went up there ostensibly to report back to Harley on the state of play But Harley wasn't giving him any instructions. I mean, either these instructions don't survive or Harley was just being very astute and putting nothing on paper. He seems to have trusted Defoe, you know, to a very large extent. And so Defoe adopted this disguise of being a merchant, trying his best to get things going in Scotland. And he was reporting back on what church people up there felt, what the ordinary people felt. And when at certain points there were riots about this possible union or riots about the terms of the union, if the Scottish people had known that Defoe was actually a spy, you know, he would have been beaten up, if not worse. Mm. So it was very dangerous for him. You know, he did show incredible bravery, actually, while he was up there, because he was completely on his own.
1: Did he have an influence on making it happen or was he just saying, look, you know, they feel like this and like this?
2: Well, he did have some influence on making it happen because he wrote and argued from a kind of common sense, moderate viewpoint. So along the lines of, well, don't get worked up about that, because in the fullness of time, you know, I'm sure the English government was sorted out, you know, that kind of attitude. And then he would write back saying, please sort this out because it's going to be a problem. Um, <laughs> right, yes, help. <laughs> exactly. It's fascinating, this sense that you get and that you're
0: conveying to us and doing your piece of him as this sort of speaker of common sense, this kind of communicator. Of course, you're a communicator when you write write novels, but he, I mean, they're two very different parts of his life, aren't they?
2: Well, of course, he's adopting a persona to get something done. I mean, most of his letters are transactional in the sense that they're written to achieve a certain outcome. Mm. It's a kind of performance. I mean, we do this now that we write letters uh, far less than we used to. But you know, when you're writing them, you adopt a kind of persona and you put on a performance. And that's exactly what his letters were, whether they were begging letters or letters of advice or just reporting. He always had this kind of stance that made you trust him. Mm. I mean, that was the point of it. So that's why when he comes to write novels and other other pieces, he knows how to become this plausible person. It's absolutely fascinating, really. You no,
0: know, he sort of learns the art of persuasion in a way. I mean, a, a, a Absolutely. rhetorical yeah. persuasion. Yes.
2: Well, he says in his writings that he was taught this in school. You know, when he went to the dissenting academy, one of the things he was taught to do was to write a report as if you were reporting for X, Y and Z King or, you know, this was something he learned how to do. And he was very, very good at it. I mean, that's why he could argue on both sides of an argument you know that's why his detractors say he had no morals because he, he was so good at it he could argue anything really mm. he's writing political
1: material and non-fiction and pamphlets isn't he until about the 1720s he turns to fiction and robinson crusoe the thing that struck me about it as well that th- i was saying in the introduction is that he, he says in his fiction oh this is real doesn't he or i've got i got this from a diary or there is a sort of conflation there as well
2: yes he pretends because of course things had much more authority if they were real i mean there wasn't a novel genre so people Mm. were much more likely to hold things in high esteem if they thought they were real if they had authority and i suppose he you know he himself had been a son who went against his father's wishes you know he went into trade when he'd been designed for the church and he had his younger son equally turned out to be a bit of a problem you know he He was put into Edinburgh University and he ended up drinking too much and having to be brought home. So he he had this personal experience he could put into his writing.
1: It struck me. I mean, he wasn't the only person to do it, was he? But it's just that very close and unusual relationship, it seems, between his fiction and his non-fiction.
0: I suppose this idea of treating, of presenting a fictional narrative as if it's a sort of found document or a story or something like that was just that part of the story of the beginnings of the novel.
2: Well, yes, and of course there was an audience for it. I mean, people who, who were hung often had their own life narrative written up you know and sold around about the time of the execution and there was a huge market for this I mean people love these stories of crime and executions afterwards you know people coming to their just end and so mm. in a sense it's a similar form you know you're writing up the story of a life whether it turns out well or badly.
0: And it often does have that kind of moral sort of you know the idea that something might be a cautionary tale or a sort of moral exemplar or something like that. That's very present in those early novels, isn't it?
2: Well, he was fascinated by these discussions of what was right, what was wrong, what was good, what was evil, you know, how you should behave and what your identity might be. And I suppose he went through all these crises of confidence himself, you know, he he would have had to have justified Writing this kind of pamphlet and that kind of pamphlet, so, in a sense, you can see where his interests would have come from. But you're right. I mean, they are often about you know good and evil, and what kind of line you should take with these things. Mm.
1: The editor of these letters, Nicholas Seeger, does he help to guide us through all these many twists and turns and complications? Does he let us know when when Defoe is kind of arguing for one side and when he's not, kind of thing
2: he does say. Each letter in his edition is prefaced by an introduction, and has footnotes, and he does say in the footnotes, for example, whether or not this letter is partisan, whether or not a particular letter is partisan. But he doesn't, in his introduction, pass judgment on Defoe. He says what other people have said about Defoe, but he doesn't himself come down on one side or the other. Which I think is very tactful in a way. You are left to make up your own mind. Mm.
1: But so he will signpost at the beginning. He's writing to this person. And he wants to convince them of
2: X. Yes. Or right. he says here this, but actually it's wrong because somewhere else he says that. Right. <laughs> okay. That sounds very helpful. <laughs> it is. It's a very good addition. And he also, you know, talks about the letters as material objects. You know how Defoe wrote. You know the, So these would have been a single sheet of paper folded in half. And Defoe rarely wrote on the third page because it would have seeped through to the address page, if you see what I mean. Mm. And Defoe also had this habit of when he wanted to show deference to the aristocracy or whoever he was writing to, he would leave a lot of white space around my lord or dear sir, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Because the paper was expensive. And so this was a sign of deference. Right. I think it's fascinating, really. Gosh, that's so interesting, isn't it? The actual, yeah. you know, the
0: coming down to such tiny things as marks of respect that we wouldn't perhaps, obviously, they influenced how when we did write letters, we wrote letters too. We wouldn't cramp things altogether. But you don't think of it as having its roots that far back in a way.
2: No, I mean, in Defoe wrote a sort of handbook for tradesmen, and he points out, you know, you you must be very careful about how you write because. It's a kind of mark of respect to the person that you're writing to that your wax seal doesn't splodge all around the outside <laughs> or, or that, you know, your handwriting is legible. And, and of course, it's absolutely right. It's just that we're so used to writing emails and WhatsApps that you don't really quite understand how this was a different art, really. No, we're not paying enough <laughs> attention to our wax seals anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, not.
1: And though you did say that we don't get that much of a sense of the man himself, the person behind all this activity, though there is a little bit in his correspondence with his
2: daughter, you said. Well, you get a sense of him performing a personal stance, if that makes sense. So you you may think you've got a sense of the man, but it could well be performative. But where it, does seem to be sincere is in his last letter to his daughter Sophia you know who he fell out with over her marriage because he couldn't really help himself that he had an enormous argument with her suitor about the dowry for one reason or another it's hard to tell why but then you know she wrote to him six weeks after this big argument and he writes back saying you know how how grateful he is that she's written to him. You know, he was he was very certain that he would never see his first grandchild. And in fact, he didn't. He died soon afterwards of a stroke. But she was his favourite daughter. And um, it's nice to think that they made up in the end, really.
1: Mm, mm. It sounds completely fascinating. And thank you so much for helping us to have a glimpse into his very complicated life. (laughs) Thank you very much.
2: They are very much worth reading. So I hope people do.
1: Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: still to come on the show, The Rachel Papers, Martin Amos' debut novel, at 50. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode.
0: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. In 1973, at the age of 24, Martin Amis published his first novel, The Rachel Papers. His protagonist, anti-hero might be more accurate than hero, certainly in the way he's been perceived, was only a few years younger than him. And his subject was love, sexual desire and the death of both. Charles Highway's eloquent, obsessional and unashamedly explicit chronicling of his relationship with Rachel introduced a clear and unusual talent, with Amos's output now running to 15 novels and several works of non-fiction. But the Rachel Papers is now 50 years old, and Charles's confessional, no-holds-barred style seems somewhat out of joint with the times. Claire Loudon, who first read the book as a teenager herself, has been rereading The Rachel Papers and writes about it in this week's TLS. She joins us now. Welcome, Claire. Hi, Alex. Hi, Lucy. Your piece was just so funny and erudite and entertaining, but I want to take you back to your teenage years, if I may. Absolutely. What were you doing and why did you read the book? What attracted you to it? What did you make of it?
3: You know what, I absolutely cannot remember how I first came across it, whether it was just in a bookshop second hand or what it was, but it felt like coming across treasure, actually, at the time. And it was just somebody speaking more frankly about sex in a high literary style than I had ever come across, and it was magic.
0: But you didn't find that when you did things like introduced it to your friends or to your book club... That they had the same response, did you?
3: Yeah, I came back to it. I think I must have read it in my late teens. And then I came back to it after university in my early 20s. I was living in London and I was briefly part of a, an all female book group. And I thought, oh, I know everyone will find this book so funny. It's all about sex. We're going to love it. So I confidently recommended it to my friends and um, They all hated it pretty much. I think we had an interesting discussion, but they, they really didn't fall for it as I had done, and they thought that Charles himself was just sort of abhorrent. So I came away from that thinking, God, I kind of got this wrong and didn't read it for many years until being asked to reread it for the TLS, which turned out to be such a treat.
0: And Do you think, you know, if your book club and your friends are a sort of indicator, would we say its reputation has not been great it's not fared very well and that's what you sort of went into this third reading kind of aware of that it'd been accused of misogyny particularly in its descriptions of Rachel's genitals her bodily functions people didn't think it was great did they
3: yeah I think that's probably right when you talk to people about Amos I think maybe this is a bit of a generalization but people often split into two camps where I'll say oh what about the Rachel papers or rather like that one and the Amos level will say, oh God, yeah, it's so underrated, it's one of his best, or will say, oh my God, no. I think it's quite divisive, but I found myself on rereading it very firmly in the yay camp. It is, ah, uh, thinking about it in terms of the way we read now and the way we think now. It wouldn't be written now. I don't think that anybody would so unselfconsciously write about men and women and sexuality in this way, but there's something very unbridled about the humour that is what makes it such a wonderful read, even if it's not perfectly in tune with our sensibilities now. There's so much truth in there anyway, I think.
1: Can I say I've got a confession. I'm always having to confess this on the podcast. I haven't read it, I'm afraid. I do try, and I'm afraid I haven't read this one. But I got the impression, is there a sort of conflation between the narrator between Charles Highway and people thinking that's Martin Amis, especially now.
3: You know what, that's a really good point. And that was something that I was really struck by rereading it as an older reader. I think that's exactly what's happened. And I think that's not the case at all. There's this brilliant ironic distance all the way through. He's sending Charles up and two of the most delicious bits actually are relating to his sort of intellectual pride he sort of assumes that women are going to go no less than he does about poetry and about art we've all met Um, those people (laughs) (laughs) and amos just rather nicely plants um two women susan who knows much more than he does about george herbert and um rachel herself who knows much more than he does about william blake and his assumptions are completely overturned and he looks like a fool so that there's sort of these little booby traps all the way through the novel and the two men amos and charles obviously they share a great deal and amos has been incredibly generous with his own autobiography and experience to kind of bulk charles out make him kind of living breathing flesh and blood on the page but they are not the same person so impressive to me that he was able to um create that ironic distance only kind of four years after the fact, as it were.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's not just that they're not the same person, but also that we're not supposed to think, from what you say, we're not supposed to think he's a heroic figure. You're quite often supposed to think, oh, my God, you know. No,
3: he's oh, he's lampooned in every possible way. He even quotes his own poetry, which is kind of like E.J. Thribb's poetry. It's terrible.
1: <laughs> Again, we've all met that guy too. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> There's a sort of
0: ironic distance inbuilt in the structure, isn't it? Because this is him, Charles, recounting and
3: remembering this relationship
0: that he's had as it were after the fact isn't it
3: yes that's right And in the sort of most grandiose kind of fussy way possible, the Rachel papers are his documentation of the affair that he's kept kind of meticulously, along with all his notes on kind of how to sort of charm different kinds of Oxbridge interviewers and all his seduction tactics. And so he's kind of collating these papers on the eve of his 20th birthday and looking back at the relationship and trying to kind of summarise it. So the whole process of his Remembrance is also heavily ironized because he just looks like a bit of an idiot kind of sitting there in his bedroom on his own.
0: Yes, well, particularly at the age of twenty. I mean, I know we all coming teenagers and even a bit longer for some of us, we are prone to grandiosity. Oh, we? we do think we're the only people to have fallen in love, felt desire, been disappointed, fallen out of love.
3: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think actually reading it as a in my late teens, that was one of the joys of it. These things that you think are so private, there they are on the page. Actually, to bring another novel into the um, discussion, Portnoy's complaint had a similar effect. And he's writing about masturbation, obviously, very sort of solitary pursuit. You think you're kind of alone with it. And there it was on the page. I think that's brilliant.
0: But it is to do with I mean, just, you know, it's to do with what we thought was fit reading matter for girls and what for boys, because I remember very similarly in my early 20s a chap who I really liked and thought was quite you know was a decent But saying to me god I'm amazed you've read a book by Martin Amos I didn't think girls liked that sort of thing and I mean <laughs> I don't think that exists to the same extent now do you?
3: I don't think it does no thank goodness I'm trying to think about what I would think of as boys books now I think maybe I would argue that David Foster Wallace tends to have his fiction tends to have heavily male fan club and that tends to be quite a kind of male dominated discussion but not I mean that's the that's not the sort of same sort of sexual braggadocio reasons that we're talking about here is it
0: yes exactly not in the sense that you think only young boys are going to want to read about masturbation yeah. we don't yeah. tend to I hope make that wide-ranging assumption now but I was very interested in the piece something that will apply to so many of us and rereading as such a as a more general idea it often brings us face to face with our memories of a book and you found didn't you that it was different in various crucial sort of ways I wondered how much that was to do with its reputation with a sort of something that's fallen between you and it over the years or how much it's just the passage of time in general and we're always going to find that when we re-encounter a text
3: no I think that's absolutely right the first thing you said about its reputation coming between my memory of it and my initial experience, which turned out to me, my very first reading of it, turned out to be closer to the latest reading. And the way I've thought about it in the intervening, well, nearly two decades has been absolutely coloured by what I thought I was meant to be thinking about it because it does have a a bad rep. He has a bad rep in some ways on this particular sort of slightly um, uh, wrong-headed men's blokey fiction. And I kind of thought, well, I must have been wrong about it, but I don't think I was.
1: (laughs) I love when you were talking about the kind of conjuring up of adolescence and going back to it and you talk about Catcher in the Rye as well. And one of the lovely things that you say is that it, it gets the feeling of the kind of sudden feelings of elation. There are mood swings and all you hear about is kind of teenagers being moody and difficult. or But there are there are also these kind of upswings, aren't there, of joy and kind of maybe transcendence even.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the most lovely things about the book and that I'd completely forgotten and it was a real pleasure to rediscover that Charles just kind of walking around London being 19 and having these moments of sort of yeah almost transcendence that actually you don't experience so often as an adult and he he describes those really well they're rare but there are some really kind of convincing lyrical moments in there that I think hit more powerfully because they're sort of nestled in amongst all the kind of smut there's a moment when he's he's taking his his A levels. He hasn't done all the ones he needs to. So he's been to a kind of crammer in London. And when he's done his final exams, he and Rachel uh leave, she comes to pick him up and they walk to the park in a in a handicapped shuffle, arms everywhere. You know, kind of how that is when you're a teenager, you kind of can't leave the other person alone. And they lie down on the grass and in their noses is the smell of trees, soil and their own bodies. And then he just writes, Oh my youth. And it's kind of, I couldn't say for certain whether it's ironic or not, but it kind of works both ways and it's incredibly powerful.
0: There's that idea, isn't there, of a love that starts in that kind of heady obsession where you can't leave another person's body alone and everything about it is delightful to you. And then what he describes, Charles describes, is a kind of growing revulsion, really. Realising that this woman is is real, has bodily functions, has body parts that aren't always going to behave exactly as he would wish them to behave in his fantasies.
3: Yeah. And I think that's the bit of the book that most people remember, actually, myself included, is that Charles grows disgusted with her. But I think that, again, what he's describing there is actually um, a fairly universal rite of passage. Falling out of love, especially the first time it happens, is startling and distressing and you're not quite sure how to handle it. And all of that is going on here, very honestly. And it's it's a really accurate portrait of that particular experience, I think.
0: Do you think that you could see in the style, I mean, you describe it in the piece that you write as virtuosic and you have talked already about how well he manages that ironic distance and that's where a lot of the power derives from. Do you think you could see that he would become this extraordinary stylist?
3: Yeah, I think you absolutely can. I think it's extraordinary that somebody is writing like this at 24 years old. It's so, the timing is so good. It's, it's endlessly inventive it's full of sort of sprightliness and joy and it's just so clever at the same time and actually the thing I love about this one compared to I'm thinking of money a uh, much longer book is that it's just so contained it's not it's not super short but it's not a long novel and you don't you don't have time to tire of the gags it's just it's I think it's kind of perfect actually as a novel there are a few clunks where the kind of chronology doesn't quite seamlessly work out. And that's just, I think, a young novelist kind of getting to grips with how stuff fits together. But in terms of tone and pace, it's just beautifully done. And absolutely the work of someone who was going to go on to become a major writer.
0: And you do thoroughly believe in this character, whether you like or don't like him. And you make the point that you think a lot of people, your friends, your book club, who didn't like it, just didn't like him very much. But he does seem like a real person to you as you're reading it
3: yeah I think that's exactly right, and how often do we get a real person on the page like not that often it's hard to do and and he's absolutely he's absolutely that as well as being able to not just be his kind of precocious manipulative actually often very frequently distressed self he's frightened of the tube he's frightened of pubs he's sort of there's there's all sorts of stuff about him you know him really well by the end, but he also manages to stand i think for um something more general, which is being a teenager so it's it's doing an awful lot in a short space.
1: Do you think from that point of view it is a bit like catcher in the rye?
3: Yeah, you know, I think it probably is a bit actually. Especially with him kind of rambling about the town on his own and kind of you know, being immersed in a world like that and the self-consciousness as well. I don't I really don't think I can think of a um a character in literature who's less in the moment than Charles Highway. He's really um you do feel sorry for him while I do it anyway. The other person I thought of though, um, was actually Sally Rooney, because I suppose actually all three of those writers are sort of puncturing a myth which is that teenagers are kind of meant to be having fun all the time. It's kind of existing in joyful abandon, but they're not at all, are they? They're second guessing everything and stumbling their way through the world. and I mean Charles is um, upset that he um at some point he sort of realizes that I, I seem incapable of using words without stylizing myself. he's he's unable to break through to his authentic self and he's conscious of that but powerless to do anything about it.
0: Yes, it does sort of become clear, I think, in the way that you write about it, that he is a lot of the sexual desire, a lot of the romantic desire is absolutely plain on its own terms. He does want to have sex. He does want to be in love. But it's also standing in for kind of larger desires, a sort of desire, as you say, for kind of a form of authenticity or connection or wisdom or something that he thinks he hasn't got that he's kind of floundering around a bit in.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And the other interesting thing about it is that um, he feels sort of deeply obliged to be having sex as a teenager, to kind of have this relationship with Rachel. It feels like something he's going to have failed at if he hasn't done by the time he gets to 20. So
0: (laughs) It's the other thing, of course, about teenage life and young life, isn't it, that you've got no real sense of timescales it all feels like it's rushing past and you've got to, you know, you'll be finished if you haven't done such and such a thing by the time you're 20 or 21. And of course, we, as we know, life is, life is long if you're lucky.
3: Yeah, that's so true. And there in the novel as well, he and Rachel are kind of both intensely conscious of ageing and see themselves at once as a kind of separate species from adults and also um, kind of a very conscious of all they don't know how to do yet they're sort of on the one hand intimidated by and dismissive of adults but very much see themselves as a as a separate thing and he's definitely fretting about turning 20 i mean it is a kind of life (laughs) crisis novel gosh
1: claire tell us about the brilliant burn that you found and related to all tls oh no that's
3: absolutely (laughs) lovely so it comes out in 1973 and with lots of prizes but there's some pretty scathing reviews of which my favorite was um grace Look in the new york times who made a criticism that's often leveled at the novel which i disagree with actually which is that um he doesn't sort of manage to animate the novel's other characters we kind of get too much charles and then at the very end of the review she says in the end i'm afraid even charles comes off as too much of a type i'm sure he'll grow up to work for the times literary supplement <laughs> ouch which, of course, Amos did. So. Well, he did.
1: Yeah, he did. It has to be said that was very
0: impressive. And Lucy, would you say from your many years in the TLS's office, there are some some Charles Highways around?
1: I couldn't possibly say. No, I don't think that's very fair. That's a very diplomatic response.
0: I wanted to ask you about that business of, you know, him animating the other characters. I mean, partly the novel's power is as a sort of exploration of solipsism is then self-obsession and absorption but this idea that he really doesn't bring Rachel herself to life I mean you take issue with that as well don't you
3: yeah that was something I'd misremembered too I'd really kind of taken on board my friends criticized that as well they said where's Rachel we're only getting Charles it's kind of not evenly balanced I mean the first thing you said Alex I think is absolutely right it's a novel about solipsism so you're asking for a different novel if you want it to be a kind mm. of a two-hander but I was surprised on rereading it how much we do find out about Rachel who actually doesn't behave that well herself in love she's kind of of, so she's sort of two-timing at the beginning she's got a boyfriend with a fantastic name de Forest Honiger and um, she's sleeping with him but she's not sleeping with Charles she's kind of stringing Charles along and then finally, she kind of sort of decides in favour of Charles and goes to spend the weekend at his house, but neglects to tell DeForest, who then becomes distraught and kind of crashes his car twice. And, and then when she and Charles finally get together, the first thing she does is kind of um, do a kind of comic routine about how crap de Forest was in bed. So she's a teenager, too, with high ideals and similar impulses to Charles himself. And... It was very refreshing to to see that, actually.
0: Yes, it's just that she's not actually writing the novel, so we don't hear all that from her point of view, but why should she be any different from him, I guess?
3: I think that's right. I mean, there are going to be some differences, but I think the main thing they have in common is their teenagers learning to drive that car of first love and desire for the first time. And yeah, not always getting it right. I'd be quite fun to have the novel from Rachel's perspective, wouldn't it? Somebody could do it. That a kind would of be good. Back. Yes.
1: Yes, that yes, would be great. It would. it would be called The Charles Papers <laughs> and we'd see what happened.
0: <laughs> Which periodical would she end up working for, I wonder? <laughs> we can't say. Look, I wonder if we get down to the sort of brass tacks of it and some of the sort of real, you know, the language and some of the objections to the language. I thought you made a really interesting point about this. One is you know his less than complimentary appraisals of her genitals and you say well hang on why can't we have these descriptions if this is what a person feels why can't we have a novelist describing it and i thought that was a point very well made and you're correct we actually have to have writing that takes on things that we think are unsavory and unpleasant about human experience and desire
3: yeah i think that's actually something that sits almost the most uncomfortably with our current moment because I think there's a really laudable movement to destigmatize things that people have often felt disgusted by about the female body that women have often felt disgusted by and so anybody writing as frankly counter to that as Amos does here seems to be kind of not exactly playing cricket it's not kind of but the uncomfortable truth is that at times we are disgusted by others bodies we are disgusted by our own bodies and it's part of human experience and therefore it should probably be part of literature, I think. And he does it brilliantly. He does it very funnily.
1: It sounds as though it's, the point is not someone kind of being disgusted by someone else, but that the feeling is that there's been too much of men being, being disgusted by women or, you know, talking about their genitalia in horrible ways or something like that. It's just the balance, isn't it? And if you had, as you say, if we had the Charles papers and she was saying the same thing, then, then brilliant, bring it on.
3: Shout out to, um, Charles's horror when he looks down and sees his rig as he calls it in its first condom a pink muff looking like an overdressed Scotty dog so I mean (laughs) actually it's kind of it's not balanced there's far more about female genitalia than there is about male and not that male genitalia don't come in for some they don't get a good rap either, but there is an imbalance in the novel, that's for sure.
1: Sure, no, but I don't mean in the novel because that's from his point of view. So that's, that's that, what yeah. he's thinking. And he's a kind of, you know, more or less smutty teenage boy. Well, all I'm saying is that if you had the equivalent, if you had Rachel writing the child's papers and being just as frank from her point of view, then presumably that will be fine. The, the problem with the depiction is that we've just seen that we've just had the men's depiction of the women.
3: A surfeit, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: It also seems in some ways to amount, as you describe it, to a kind of quaint lack of gallantry because there seems to be a sort of fury that he depicts her as having a spot. And, you know, that's almost the final straw for him. His passion, all passion calls when he discovers the spot on the end of her nose. Of course, that's very unfair because he has them too and they're teenagers and for goodness sake. But that just seems to be a bit of rudeness on his part. I mean nobody likes to have a spot or look at one
3: do they? No that's true it's a little bit more subtle than that I think because it's not just that she's got a spot it's that he seems to be bothered by the fact that their relationship has been built around the idea that they're both completely perfect at all times and that he wants to make a joke about the spot because it's kind of right in the middle of her nose but they they haven't built up any kind of candor and It's actually, I think, he's experiencing it as a kind of barrier to intimacy. He's feeling kind of very restricted by what's required of them both in the relationship to keep playing these perfect romantic roles. And the the spot is kind of the thing that tips him over the edge there.
0: It seems to be in that way, sort of in the tradition of Jonathan Swift, doesn't it, And the, the ladies' dressing room?
3: I think one of the chapter headings references Swift, so that's absolutely right. Just having a quick flick through it here to see if I can find it. Yeah, here we go. Um, all the headings in the book are timed because he's leading up to midnight on the um, the day of his 20th birthday. It's 20 past Celia Schitts, the Dean of St. Patrick's. So that's his discovery that that woman is, is not perfect.
0: Well, I'm delighted to find that you regard it as almost, not quite a perfect book, but almost a perfect book. And it is just so lovely, as you say, there is, I think you use words, it's a deep nostalgic pleasure to going back and actually Finding something better than you thought it
3: was. Yeah, it was a real
0: joy. What can we set you to reread next, do you think, Claire? <laughs> what needs to be rescued from having been slightly sort of damped down by either reputation or the passage of time, I wonder?
3: Oh, what a good question.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm now thinking of this as a series. I mean, of course, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's a series of, of rereadings that you're going to do. And here's the question, really. What might it be next? And what would we do if actually you said, no, that was much, much worse than I thought it was? Yeah, I, I bet there's some out there
3: that will be worse than you think. A like very that.
1: short piece that says, oh, no, don't bother. I was wrong. Yeah. I wonder
3: what it would be like <laughs> rereading The Cement Garden by Ian McEwen, thinking of, of very early works by major mm-hmm. writers. Yes, that's a very good question.
0: Shall we ask you to do that next and come back to report on it? Now, the other question, I suppose, Lucy, is you having not read this novel, I must confess, I haven't read it for a very, very long time, but do you think you're now going to go away and read the Rachel papers?
1: I think I'm much more likely to read it than I would have been before I had read Claire's piece. I feel, in all honesty, I feel I might be a bit old for it, but maybe not. Maybe I should read it and recapture... Um, Recapture what it's like to be a teenager and think, "Thank
3: God I'm not a teenager anymore." <laughs> I think that is the main takeaway. Thank God I'm not a teenager.
0: <laughs> well, it's had the loud and touch, and it's now newly lusted. So, thank you very, very much, Claire, for coming and talking to us about it. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
0: That's all we have
1: time for this week. Our thanks go to Margaret Lincoln and Claire Loudon. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS Podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.